0: This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrochi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on The Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to The Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today, the day before the last day of the term for the Supreme Court. And we're here at Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California.
2: And I'm Bob Ambrogi from Heat Wave Struck, Massachusetts. I write a blog, law site, another blog called Media Law, and also the legal blog, watchforlaw.com.
1: And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, the hint there was that this is going to be a big week for the Supreme Court. So far, we've had five rulings, three out of the five showing a fairly conservative lean in favor of the Bush administration. There were some 5 4 rulings in three cases free speech, religion, and campaign finance, and the other two cases involved endangered species, private property, public land issues.
2: That's right, and it, it's not over yet. Today's June 27th. Tomorrow the court is expected to uh, issue uh, the last of its rulings for the term. Uh, but today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about some of the cases that the uh, court issued this week, particularly those dealing with First Amendment issues. And uh, we're also going to take a maybe a little bit broader look at at uh, the term as a whole and get our guest's impression of uh, how it looked.
1: In order to do that, I'd like to welcome our first guest Tony Marl. Tony is the Supreme Court correspondent for Legal Times, American Lawyer Media and law.com. He joined ALM in January 2000 after covering the Supreme Court for USA Today and Gannett News Service for the last 20 years. Tony is a legal correspondent for the First Amendment Center and serves on the steering committee of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and on the advisory board of the World Press Freedom Committee. Welcome to the show, Tony.
3: Good to be with you.
2: Also joining us today is Amy Howe, partner at Howe & Russell in Washington, D.C., uh, which concentrates in pro bono Supreme Court litigation. Amy has served as counsel to over in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court, including matters involving criminal law, death penalty, First Amendment, bankruptcy, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. She's currently a lecturer in law at Stanford Law School, where she co-teaches the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, and she's co-taught at the Supreme Court Litigation class at Harvard Law School, She's also a regular contributor to and editor of SCOTUS blog. Welcome to the show, Amy.
4: Hi, thanks for inviting me.
2: Well, uh, Tony, uh, let's start with you, and and let's start with with, uh, this week's cases. And uh, probably one of the most talked about cases has been that known as Bonk Hits for Jesus. Uh, I wonder if you could give us uh, kind of a a quick overview of, of what this case was about and what the court did with it.
3: Well, this was a a pretty uh, unusual First Amendment case. Uh, It it involved a a student in Alaska who just wanted to get on television uh, when the uh, Olympic torch was passing through town, and to do so, he stood across the street from his high school in Juneau and uh, unfurled a banner that said, Bong hits for Jesus, on it. And uh, even he said later on that he had no idea what what that meant, and he was just it was just nonsensical but the uh, principal of the school uh, took it to be a pro-drug message and ordered him to take it down and when he didn't she uh, she took it down and suspended it It suspended uh, the young man Joseph Frederick and uh, uh, so he then sued claiming his First Amendment rights had been violated Uh, and what the supreme court said basically was that uh well first of all all, all nine justices agreed that, that the principal should not be held liable for uh what she, what she did uh you know uh, government officials government employees can be held liable if they violate somebody's constitutional rights but they said that this was not a case that came close to that but on the first amendment issue uh they uh they did agree essentially to make a kind of a drug exception to the First Amendment when it comes to student free speech that because uh, the interest of uh, schools in combating illegal drugs was so strong that this justified what the principal had done even if it was a pretty ambiguous drug message what was particularly interesting is that, that you know that even the majority the conservative majority was, was split on this uh, how how far to go, Uh, Justice Thomas went went so far as to argue that the the leading precedent in this area, Tinker versus Des Des Moines Independent School District, should be overturned. And this is a decision that everybody has relied on for, uh, you know, 40 years uh, almost uh, that said that students' speech rights don't end at the schoolhouse gate. Um, but Thomas would have just tossed that over the side
2: well i've read various uh, uh, interpretations of, of whether this is a, uh, a a curtailment of students rights under the first amendment or whether this is very fact specific and doesn't really change the first amendment jurisprudence what's your take on that
3: well i think it i think it is so, it is limited but it, limited pr- to drug related speech and possibly i guess uh, uh, alcohol but but within that small exception, you know a lot of mischief can be made by i think by school officials if uh if they believe that uh, you know that uh, perhaps say a debate in the school newspaper on uh, the merits of legalizing marijuana you know would that where would that fall uh, I think the majority was pretty clear on uh that a debate of that type would be protected, whereas simple advocacy of illegal drugs would would not be but like i said it, you know the uh the way it's applied could could tell us more about what how broad broadly uh the court ruled Amy, you
1: had the chance to follow this case. What are your thoughts on it?
4: I think Tony's right that there that there is some narrowing but that there, it's hard to say at this point exactly how much that is. One thing that is noteworthy is that the court specifically rejected the argument that was made by school officials and by the United States as a friend of the court um on behalf of uh, on the side of the school officials that schools that schools can censor anything that interferes with the school's educational mission. But on the other hand, as Tony said, you know, this is what what the dissent described as basically a nonsense message, bong hits for Jesus, and you know, to the, the, the idea that school officials have have pretty broad reign to to regulate speech if, if they think it relates to illegal drug use, you know, it's definitely is definitely narrowing, you know, even if it's not disruptive.
1: Amy, this. The student wasn't on school grounds when he unfurled the banner right
4: exactly I think that's that was the, the next point that I was going to make is that you know it used to be that the, you know your first amendment rights don 't stop at the schoolhouse gate, but you know where does the schoolhouse gate end these days in this case, the student was across from the school holding the banner, and Frederick the student tried to make this an issue in a case, but the court wouldn't wouldn't bite you know he said they said that it was essentially a field trip, but you know what else could could be regarded as sort of a school-sanctioned or school-supervised activity? And would that extend to websites or you know, some other medium that, that that we haven't thought of at this point?
1: Do you think the banner would have been protected had it been unfurled on a Saturday or a Sunday when school wasn't in session, but yet still across from the
3: school?
4: I think that would be a much a much tougher case.
3: Yeah, I would agree. And I, and I, um, I do think it, it, it was interesting that the the issue of where the banner was unfurled was really a non-issue. Uh, I think some people thought that, that could that the whole decision could turn on that point, that it, it wasn't on school property. But the court said, you know, this was, the students were under school supervision, uh, the, the Olympic torch was passing through, and uh, it really was, as, as Amy says, the equivalent of a field trip. Um, and I was surprised that that point was... Uh, just kind of blown off by the by the majority.
4: Well, one thing that the and one thing that the majority emphasizes is that even the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled in Frederick's favor, said that it was school-sanctioned. So, despite Frederick's efforts to make it an issue, he wasn't didn't have a lot of success on this point.
2: Right. But on the on the drug point, though, I mean, you know, one one of the—obviously, a concern whenever anybody uh, finds some reason to chip away at First Amendment rights is that uh, the nature of judicial precedent is that the next case provides another opportunity to apply that chipping away. And, and the, what some of the court's reasoning about illegal drugs could be—you uh, would think could be applied to other kinds of student activity that may not necessarily be, uh, you know, disruptive to school activities, but— uh, but that uh well I, you know I, I guess I guess disruption is in the eye of the beholder is the problem sometimes and and uh, 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 other kinds of activity that that you would have thought would be protected could now be uh, called into question under this case
4: I think that's right, I mean one of the the points that the petition for certiorari urging the court to grant review in this case made was that the court needed to grant cert to sort of clarify the boundaries of free speech in in school and I'm not sure that this decision actually did much at all to do that.
1: Well, the Ninth, the Ninth Circuit out here in California has uh, taken a real beating in front of the United States Supreme Court, and there's somewhat of a—I don't want to call it a joke, but at least a passing observation by some of the lawyers—that it's almost malpractice to not uh, file a cert application on a Ninth Circuit case.
3: That's
4: true. Although this year, the Ninth Circuit—you know—the Ninth Circuit does take a beating um, as a general rule, and has the past couple of terms. This year. It's actually doing all things being being relative fairly well. Um, I think that it, it's there have been 20 cases before the court out of the Ninth Circuit so far, and it's quote unquote only been reversed in in 12. So given that you know the sort of the conventional wisdom that the court takes cases to reverse to reverse anyway, you know it, its batting record seems to have improved.
2: There, there seem to be several people who've, who've said that Justice Alito's uh, concurrence in this case is 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 really more the meat of it than the majority opinion and i'm just wondering uh, uh tony or amy if you have any thoughts on that
3: well uh the, his his opinion in in you mean in uh in, Morris, in, yes. in the right uh well so far as
2: he pointed out that he that he that he saw the narrow, the opinion as as very narrowly applied and uh and that he joined it for that reason
3: right and that he 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 viewed this as uh he, he he comes out of this decision, I think, quite strongly pro pro speech, uh, pro student speech, uh, and it, it, uh, what I was mentioning earlier about Justice Thomas casts Thomas and Alito and sort of opposite ends, even though um, you know they're ideologically not that far apart. But uh, free speech issues are kind of a a tricky uh, they, they don't. You know, fall neatly on uh, liberal, conservative lines, and even among conservatives there are there are divisions.
4: and that really was, I think actually one of the the most interesting things that that has happened this term and this week in particular, is that the conservative justices on the court were able to get together and, and agree at least on a result, but were not necessarily able to agree on reasoning or, or you, you saw a lot of frustration from justices Scalia in particular and Thomas. Um, that the other conservative justices weren't necessarily going as far as they would have liked.
3: Yeah, it's almost like Scalia and Alito have, you know, they have these new playmates on the playground and they want to, you know, really go go far and fast uh, in disrupting precedent. But uh, Alito and and Roberts uh, are, are saying, you know, not so fast. Uh, that, that was a recurring theme this week.
2: Tony, you wrote yesterday in uh, Legal Times about the uh, decision on on Monday uh, regarding uh, uh, the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, uh, and I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. And if you could, if you could again give us a kind of an overview of, of that case.
3: Yeah, th- this was involved a, a, an important part, important section of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform law of uh, two thousand two, and. Uh, but this provision had to do with uh uh issue advertising in the crucial period before elections and before primaries uh advertising that mentions a candidate's names but name but doesn't say vote for or against uh that person instead it'll say uh, call uh senator uh jones's office uh, and tell him you're concerned about immigration uh this was the kind of ad that it, if it's paid for directly by union and corporate or corporate funds was banned by the McCain-Feingold law. And it was upheld uh, on its face in 2003, but the court invited challenges uh, as applied, as the law is applied, and that's what this was, a a uh, a challenge involving the Wisconsin Right to Life organization, which wanted to put up some ads uh, that mentioned Senator Feingold's name, and he uh, was up for re-election at the time. So those ads were uh, illegal, essentially. And what the court uh, on Monday said was uh, these these ads really should be protected uh, by the First Amendment. And uh, but the court and uh, Amy maybe could uh, sort out the the justices uh, better than I. But it, the court was not. The court was split on how how bad these ads were. Well, they said that the, the, these particular ads were unconstitutional. Uh, again, uh, Roberts and Leto I think, did not want to go all the way and overturn their 2002 decision on this point. Whereas the other conservative justices would would have gone all all the way and said that, in fact, we were wrong. Um, or the court was wrong uh, in in 2003 on this point. So again, there was a division on uh, among the conservatives.
4: And this was probably, you know, Justice Scalia. We we hear about him using his poison pen when he disagrees with the outcome in a decision. And in this case, he you know agreed with uh, Justice the Chief Justice and Justice Alito. Just, that the uh, restrictions were unconstitutional, but he still unleashed the poison pen and essentially uh, accused chief, the chief justice of, you know, sort of intellectual dishonesty. You know, calling the you know, his failure to overrule McConnell explicitly, even though it effectively gutted the 2003 decision in McConnell. You know, faux, regi- faux judicial restraint that you know, constitutes judicial obfuscation.
2: Before we, uh, we're, we're getting. Close to the time we have to take a break, and I wonder if we could uh, move on to the, to the hind case before we do that. Um, Amy, do you want to do the honors this time or, or do you want us to stick with Tony? Can you, you want to tell us about that case?:
4: I'd be glad to do it. Um, the, the Bush administration in the executive branch established an office of faith-based initiatives that was designed to help religious groups get access to federal funding for, for various programs and a group of taxpayers, didn't like the fact that, that you know, federal funds were being spent to try and help these um, religious groups, and they filed a lawsuit. And as a general rule, taxpayers don't have what's called standing to sue to challenge governmental actions unless they can show a direct harm. And this was uh, you know, this is a, a longstanding principle. But in 1968, in a case called Flast versus Cohen, the Supreme Court established an exception to this general rule against standing in taxpayer cases for establishment clause cases Um, but the court held in Hein that the taxpayers in fact do lack standing to sue the executive branch in this case and the distinction this is an opinion by justice alito joined by the chief justice and justice kennedy and the distinction that the uh... those three justices drew was between the kind of specific congressional earmarks that were at issue in Flast versus Cohen and the kind of funding that was at issue in this case, um, which is general funds to the executive branch for it to use at its discretion. And and so they said that there wasn't the the nexus there. Um, Interestingly, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas uh, uh, joined in the result, but they, in fact, urged the court would have overruled Flast versus Cohen but you know, his point was that the court's taxpayer standings are a hopeless mess, and that's why we need to overrule Flask versus Cohen. And so you have six justices: Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, and then the four dissenting justices, who all agree that you know whether it's a specific congressional fund uh, earmark or general fund to the executive branch, it shouldn't make any difference for purposes of standing.
1: Do you think it's ever possible to gain standing? Would it take someone or an organization that was denied federal funding in order to be able to make that challenge stick?
4: Well, this—I mean, it, this case is li- is definitely limited to taxpayer standing, and so there could be other cases. And I think this is, is fairly clear from the opinion involving executive expenditures for religious purposes, in which you know another plaintiff would have grounds for standing.
2: I mean, once again, it seems like you know. What, what, you're, what you're saying about all of these cases is, is that, uh, to some extent, the significance is, is in the, the lineups of the judges as much as the holding of the case. Uh, what are the implications of, this, of these cases uh, going forward?
3: Well, it, 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 as far as the, the, the line of the court, it, it is true. I, I think uh, this, that, the, that Alito and Roberts are coming out of this week seeming to be more moderate. Than the other conservatives, uh but some liberal uh commentators are arguing that well you know it really doesn't matter because they all came out pretty much in this the same way uh it it could be that Roberts and Alito are just sort of using the other conservatives as foils to make them themselves seem more moderate when in fact the court is he- heading in a very conservative direction.
2: All right. We're going to take a short break right now. And when we return, we'll hear some final thoughts on the term and further conversation with our guests.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day, or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email.
4: If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781 634 8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
0: Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, Jake Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at legaline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams.
2: And this is Bob Ambrogi. We're, we'd like to welcome back our, our guests for this program, Tony Morrow, the Supreme Court correspondent for Legal Times, American Lawyer Media, and Law.com. And Amy Howe, partner at Howe & Russell in Washington, D.C., and a regular contributor to and editor of SCOTUS blog. And uh, uh, let's let's ask uh, a little bit about the bigger picture uh, we're we're just about at the end of the term uh uh cases due tomorrow possibly on Guantanamo i believe and and uh, and uh, maybe somebody could help me with what else is due out tomorrow uh but but w- looking back at, at this term um amy what what are what are what's your kind of overall take on on uh what the uh, d- sort of the, the defining uh, picture of this term will be
4: I think there are a couple of, I mean, we mentioned the, before the break, Tony mentioned the idea that the Chief Justice and Justice Alito were proving to be more moderate than Justices Thomas and Scalia, and I, I think that's true, but perhaps the important point may well be that Justice Alito, while, although more moderate than Justices Thomas and Scalia, is a, proving to be a good bit more conservative than Justice O'Connor, whom he replaced. And so this court, this term, has, has gone a long way to sort of not explicitly, but, but but de facto overruling some of the, the cases in which Justice O'Connor played a prominent role, the McConnell com- campaign finance case, um, the Carhartt partial birth abortion case, and the other, uh, this sort of segues into your question, the other case that we're expecting tomorrow are the cases are the Seattle and Louisville school cases. Um, it's widely believed, based on sort of Reading the tea leaves, that the chief justice is going to be writing these opinions, and so we expect that the the outcome is likely to be a decision uh, against the the programs at issue, against the schools, and in favor of the parents who've challenged the diversity programs. And so that would, you know, could also either explicitly or de facto overrule the um, Grutter case, the Michigan affirmative action case. I think Mm -hmm. that's a, a real central theme this term.
1: Have you seen any level of uh, cases that uh, harken back to the kind of pushback that the public gave to the Kelo case?
3: Nothing. I don't think, see anything that had, has uh, generated that kind of a grassroots response. I mean, it's possible that the school cases, uh, depending on how they're worded, might uh, do that. But I, I think uh, another message of this term um, overall has been a very strong pro-business uh Uh, of this this new Roberts Court. And that doesn't automatically flow from the fact that they're conservative because conservative justices aren't always pro-business justices. But this court seems to be both conservative and pro-business. The court has issued a number of rulings that make it harder for plaintiffs in uh, in a whole range of cases uh, against corporations. And, of course, the big case was the punitive damage case uh, in the Philip Morris litigation over liability for uh, tobacco. And the, uh, and the only exception really was the case involving uh, global warming, which said that the state of Massachusetts did have su- uh, standing to challenge the EPA's inaction on on global warming issues. Other than that, the court was, in almost every case, was it came out, in favor of uh, a pro-business, pro-Chamber of Commerce position.
1: There was an earlier decision this year that made a rather significant clarification, at least for those of us who practice environmental law, in the circle field. Uh, it was a bit surprising to me given the confusion that got created by some of the court's earlier rulings, and it was definitely a, uh, I would say it was an environmental uh, ruling from the standpoint that it provided funds to be able to clean up uh, contamination, at least sources for funds, but uh, would you view that more as a a pro business case or more as a uh, environmental style ruling?
3: Well, um, I'll I'll defer to you on that. <laughs> but I, I uh, you know, uh, the court has been more interested lately, it seems, in environmental cases, and I think that we may see more more of that in the next uh, next few terms.
1: The case I'm talking about is U.S. versus Atlantic Research that uh, clarified uh, Cooper Industries versus Avial. Amy, any thoughts on that one?
4: Uh, that one, as I recall, was actually an unusual, sort of an unusual alliance. I think that it, what, although it wound up being sort of a pro-environmental result, in, in some sense it was also uh, a pro-business result because it allowed the, the businesses who are responsible for the cleanup to, to go after you know, other businesses to you know, get them to contribute. The cleanup. So it's sort of analyzed some strange bedfellows going on in that one.
2: Well, if I could just bring bring us back to this week's cases. I'm just something I keep hearing all the time is is that uh, these this these are troubled times for the First Amendment. Uh, and after this week, uh, how how are times looking for the First Amendment? I mean, are there are there significant cases that are working their way up that we're aware of that that uh, are going to further. Um, uh, uh, define the parameters of these cases
3: i'd say the first amendment is still in pretty good shape i mean uh... uh the, the fact that um, several of the conservative justices were uh... either for the first amendment claimant and uh, as in the uh... king Pen finance case or or else they weren't didn't want to cut back uh... as much as some of their colleagues were w- willing to do suggests that uh this is still essentially basically a pro first amendment court i mean i shudder to think what what might happen if the court takes a, a free, freedom of the press case right. or a libel case uh, but it hasn't done that in more than a, more than a decade and uh uh but as far as these other speech issues i think uh i think at the end of the week at the end of the day we're we're Pretty decent shape.
2: Well, some people here in Boston have been wondering why uh, the Boston Herald didn't take, uh, didn't go up to the Supreme Court on a on a recent case in which the uh, Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts uh, affirmed a a major libel verdict in favor of a judge here in Massachusetts, uh, and and, and uh, maybe that's what they were thinking when they didn't go up to the Supreme Court.
3: I think that's definitely did. I wrote about that a little bit, and and I think the the, the Herald was probably well advised. Uh, not to not to uh, test their luck with the Supreme Court.
1: Amy, if you were to look back at this term and see some of the rulings and, and noticing even this week that a lot of the rulings are very specific, fact-tailored, uh, limited to uh, particular instances, it seems like the court is uh, having kind of a glacial shift away from broad sweeping pronouncements and rulings to things that are are very specific. Do you c- concur with that or do you think it's uh, something different?
4: Well, I think that the court is deeply divided and I think when you have a deeply divided court, you're often likely to get narrower rulings because you want you you know, it's harder to get your five justices on your five votes on board and you need to keep them on board. And so, you know, we've had 20 cases so far that were divided by, you know, divided by a five-vote majority and Justice Kennedy has been in the majority, majority in, in all twenty of those cases, um, which is in itself a, a sort of another interesting little tidbit to take away from this term. And you know, before her retirement, Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy were the swing voters, and now Justice Kennedy has sort of squarely moved into that that seat all by himself.
1: As time progresses, do you see a uh, this? Do you see the court? Uh, Changing in terms of its uh, configuration, do you see a retirement in the offing for the next term or the next couple of terms? Where, where's the court headed?
4: Well, Justice Stevens, who's the the oldest justice and you know, solidly within what we now regard as the the court's liberal wing, is 87 years old. Um, you know, I think no one thinks that he's going to voluntarily retire anytime soon. I think that for you know for the Democrats, I think that the 2008 elections are really quite quite significant, because you know you 're looking at uh, possibly the retirement of Justice Stevens in the next four or five years um, justice Justices Ginsburg and Souter would also probably be the justices that everyone might think would be most likely to retire in the near future, and so you know, there could be sort of a sea change in the makeup of the court if a Republican were to win in two thousand and eight and and one or more of those justices were to retire if a Democrat. Would win um, in 2008. Uh, you know, I think that you probably would expect these this sort of division to to go on for some time.
3: Yes, that's, I think that I agree that the, when you look look at the possible retirements, they are all on the moderate to liberal side of things. And it, so, even if a Democrat replaces them, uh, we will still be having conversations like the one we're having now about how conservative the Supreme Supreme Court. Uh, really is. Um, but, you know, then you n- you never know uh, what the circumstances will be and who's going to leave for what reason. But I'll note uh, Justice Stevens, uh, uh, I'm trying to confirm this right now, but it, Justice Stevens uh, has hired clerks for the 2008-2009 term. So uh, he is planning ahead.
2: So Justice Stevens will be here next year, what do you think. We're, we're about I'll at be the here
4: not only next year, but the year after that, as far that's as he's right. concerned.
2: We, we're about at the end of our, our time. And we, we always like to give our, our guests the final word around here. So let me just ask uh, uh, each of you, if you have any final thoughts on this topic, and also if you just tell our listeners uh, how they can find out uh, more about you or get in touch with you. Uh, and Tony, let's start with you.
3: Well, uh, I guess I would just say that uh, uh even though the court has this shrinking docket uh, uh, it's 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 never boring it's always interesting there are always hot topics to be uh decided and uh and I think we're we're next term he has very few decisions or few cases on his docket yet but uh, I'm sure there will, there will be uh uh, more news to come, and uh, uh, if you want to read what I'm writing, uh, law dot com is the place to read it.
2: And Amy, how about you?
4: Well, this week, I think the final week of the Supreme Court's term is always sort of the the Supreme Court geeks equivalent of I don't know March Madness and the World Series all rolled into one. Um, and so, this is um, you know I think that we've. Seen as far as the court's concerned, it, you know, Justice the Chief Justice during his confirmation hearing indicated that he wanted to be a, a conciliator, that he you know, was hoping, that we, we heard speeches about how he was hoping to foster more uni- unanimity among the court. But um, the, it seems like the, maybe the honeymoon is over now. And you can, you know, in addition to law.com, we'll be covering events tomorrow and sort of the rack up, wrap up of the term over the next couple of days on scotusblog.com.
2: March Madness in June. Yes. Well, thank you very much to, to our guests. Uh, this has been uh, an informative look at, at the, the week's opinions and, and some of the broader issues around the court. Uh, appreciate
1: both of your time.
4: Thanks for inviting me. Good to be with you.
1: Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to have you. And, Tony, welcome. thanks very much for participating in the show again.
3: Sure. Glad to do it.
1: Craig, you and I will talk again next week. We will, and at that point, we'll know what happened at the end of the March Madness for the uh, for the Supreme Court term at the end of June. Great. Talk to you then. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambroji and J. Craig Williams. We hope you'll lose it again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com.